Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. What kick-started the earliest life here on Earth? Now, life is incredibly complex and relies on geochemistry and biochemistry to work. So what could have kick-started that? How did we unlock the minerals that we need to form complex molecules? Was it meteorites or maybe something else? Plus, how we developed the complex dance between mRNA, DNA and proteins, and which one of them came first? Now, biologists, astrobiologists, scientists, even people at home watching alien movies, all like to think about the idea of life on Mars, life on another planet, life out there. But the development of life here on Earth is just as remarkable as the development of life anywhere else. And a big question that we have to ask ourselves is just how exactly did life develop here on Earth in the first place? Because there are many things that you need to have life. And it's not quite as simple, at least for life that we're familiar with, of requiring just water on its own. And in fact, the presence of water doesn't explain some of the mysteries around the development of life. And we're going to look at a story here published in the journal Nature Communications by lead author Benjamin Hess and the guidance of Professor Sandra Piazzolo and Associate Professor Jason Harvey, working from University of Leeds. And they've been investigating the way something pretty common or rare, depending on how you think about it, lightning, and how that could have been involved in kicking off life here on Earth. Now, to get back to when life actually began on Earth, the latest that we think it developed was around 3.5 billion years ago, or GA. Now, that's what carbon isotropic evidence suggests, but it could be as early as 3.8 to 4.1 billion years ago. That's a long time considering the age of the Earth. Now, one of the things that you need for life, uh, aside from water, is some key elements and minerals. And the thing is, these key elements and minerals have to come from somewhere. One such molecule is found in a number of different biological processes, complex ones at that. And it would have been essential for life here on Earth to have these in order to develop, because how else could we have developed things like DNA, RNA, phosphophyllids, and ATP? These are all things that are part of a process development of life. Without phosphorus, well, you can't get these processes developing. So where did the phosphorus come from and how early did we first have phosphorus? This seems like a silly question because phosphorus is just a mineral. And that's true, but most of the terrestrial phosphorus that we have here on Earth, and it is all over the place, can be found in the oxidized form of phosphate, PO43 minus. And normally, this phosphate is bound up in different types of minerals, like apatite. The problem about things like apatite, these minerals are insoluble in water. That means that whilst there's phosphate there and phosphate is abundant, without some way to break down this mineral, well, it would just be stuck there. And if it's not dissolvable in water, what else could have dissolved it and released it in large quantities to kickstart the developmental process of life? It's no good having water and having phosphate if you can't access it. 
Now, we know that obviously something was around to enable life to develop because they got access to this phosphorus. So what was the process that delivered phosphorus in a form that was accessible from a chemical perspective? Well, an earlier hypothesis has been that minerals have delivered to Earth via meteorites and impacts for many billions of years, all kinds of strange minerals. And these would have kick-started life in such that it provided key ingredients that you need for life to develop. And that may be the case. And we know for a fact that meteorites do bring lots of different minerals to Earth. So that's undisputed. But is that the only way? Were we purely reliant on the delivery of meteorites to seed life on this planet, or at least chemically unlock different types of minerals and kickstart the development of life? Now, when we talk about meteorite strikes, they do occur. In early Earth life, it would have occurred more often as Earth was sweeping up and clearing its orbital region. There would have been much more impacts than there were now. And there's still a reasonable number of meteorites coming to Earth right now as well these micrometeorites in particular. But this isn't really enough to kickstart the full development of life. So there has to be other sources. And meteorite strikes do happen, but they're rare. Something else on a global setting that seems like a rare event, but is actually macro level on Earth, very, very common, is lightning strikes. Because lightning happens so frequently somewhere across the Earth each hour, minute, and that means that it is actually a pretty active process. Now, these researchers from Leeds University, lead author on this paper, Benjamin Hess, and two professors from the Geology and Geochemistry departments, were investigating some pretty large samples of interesting events, interesting types of minerals, something called fulgurite. It's a rock that's created when lightning strikes the ground. And this particular sample was from Illinois, USA, from 2016. They were looking at it because from a geological perspective, the transformation of a rock or a mineral once it gets struck by lightning is fascinating. There's a lot of complex geochemistry involved here. And when they were studying this particularly unusual sample, they found a really large amount of an unusual phosphorus mineral called schreibersite. Now, this was pretty surprising. They didn't really expect to see this much of the schreibersite there. Why does this matter? Well, schreibersite is sometimes found in some classes of meteorites. Okay, cool, interesting. But it's also a type of compound that is very, very reactive. When wetted, shrubside forms hydrous activated phosphate. And that might sound like a lot, but basically it means that when it's wetted, it starts to form a type of phosphorus that can then interact and form basic organic molecules. I'm not an expert in organic chemistry, but effectively what this can do is start to create the building blocks for assembling more and more complex organic compounds. More and more complex organic compounds leads to new inter interactions, which leads to the development of life. This is the power of phosphorus and the role that phosphorus played in the development of life here on the planet by forming the basics of a lot of organic chemistry. Schreibersite, when you get it wet, actually creates a lot of this unlocked phosphorus that can lead to life developing. Now, we know it happens with meteorites, which is one of the reasons why people believe meteorites were a good seeding source for kicking off organic chemistry here on early Earth. By finding it in fulgurite, this lightning-created mineral, it shows the power of lightning to actually create the building blocks of organic chemistry here on early Earth. 
The other important factor here is that whilst minerals can be delivered to Earth via meteorites, the volume of minerals delivered is relatively low. By contrast, a lightning strike was able to create a fairly large proportional amount of shribosite. And that means that given how many millions and billions of lightning strikes occur every year, well, that would create a lot of mineral development here on Earth without relying on extraterrestrial sources. That probably would have been enough to seed the formations, the building blocks of organic chemistry here on Earth in perhaps the little warm ponds, as Darwin famously put it. Now, another key factor about this is it means that life developing on Earth or perhaps other planets or celestial bodies doesn't actually require a large amount of meteorites. The big problem with reliant on this meteorite hypothesis is that if you didn't have a large range of meteorites falling onto the planet, then there would be not enough to kickstart this process. But showing that lightning strikes can do it means that there are another source out there of developing these building blocks of organic chemistry. That means that life basically could develop, or at least the building blocks and precursors of it, at any point, as long as there is sufficient weather activity. And it's pretty reasonable to expect a planet with water to have an active atmosphere. Now, this helps us deeper understand the formation of life here on Earth, the formation of organic chemistry here on Earth, and also how it would impact the hunt for life on other planets, and highlights the importance that weather and lightning might have on developing life both here on Earth and across the universe. This is some great research published in Nature Communications, lead author Benjamin Hess, collaborators Sandra Piazzolo and Jason Harvey, collaborating from the University of Leeds. So we just talked about the chemical basis for a lot of complex life to develop, the precursors required for organic chemistry to function. And now we're going to look at another big problem in the early development of life. And that involves the combination of RNA, DNA, and proteins. Because life is this complex series of dances, a network of interactions which take place on the microscopic level inside biological cells with thousands of distinct different molecules in our bodies alone one fundamental process repeated millions and billions of times each day it's called replication let's just look at this as just an example proteins duplicate this genetic information present in dna molecules stored inside the cell nucleus basically the protein helps make a copy of all of that key instruction set, DNA, inside the cell nucleus, and then distributes them equally to two daughter cells during the process of cell division. This information is then selectively copied, which we call transcription. This transcription goes into what's called messenger RNA, mRNA molecules, which will then direct the synthesis and the creation of many more different proteins that are all required by these newly formed daughter cells. Then you need another type of RNA, this case transfer RNA, 
which helps translate these mRNAs into the actual proteins. These transfer RNA act as kind of like middlemen, negotiating between the mRNA and the proteins, and ensuring that there's suitable amino acid subunits on the, and each particular protein areas for them to bond to. Now, this is an incredibly complex and coordinated dance that's occurring on a molecular level all the time. Now, like with any complex thing or a big party, what happened first? Was the party arranged? Did someone lay out all of the entertainment, the music, book the venue? Did the guests arrive first? And then a venue was arranged for them. And who is playing the music? Who set up the speaker system? Now, that's effectively a big and challenging question. In order for life to really develop and establish these processes, they can't just have all appeared out of nowhere. And how could this incredibly complex dance between DNA, mRNA, and proteins have arisen in the earliest of systems here on Earth? In a classical philosophical sense, this is a chicken and egg program. You need proteins to do the transcription process of the genetic information, but you can't synthesize the proteins without the transcription. This is what researchers from the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich have been investigating and have published recently in the journal eLife. Lead author is Alexander Kulnein with collaborating authors Simon Lansmisch and Dieter Braun. And so researchers from LMU, under the guidance of her professor Dieter Braun, been trying to crack open this mystery, figure out which one came first and how this process could have resolved. And what they focused in on was the transfer RNA, tRNA. And the reason why they picked this is that tRNA is found in across all three domains of life. You can see tRNA present in the unicellular archaea and bacteria. These things don't actually have a cell nucleus and yet tRNA is still present. You can also see it in eukaryota, organisms which actually do have a cell nucleus. That's most life that you will think of as life, complex life anyway. Now, this suggests that tRNA is in both branches of life, all the way back into the simplest forms, possibly also one of the most ancient molecules in biochemistry. Now, when they were investigating tRNA, they discovered that it's possible that modern tRNA molecules actually have, with some small modifications, the ability to interact autonomously amongst themselves and form a kind of self-replicating module. And this, if you let it unlocked, is basically capable of exponential replication. This means that tRNA, in the right circumstances, can actually be autonomous and self-replicating. That's interesting, really interesting because it suggests that tRNA has certainly the capability, or it once had at least, to be a fundamental building block that developed on its own, that could then be used by more complex and more sophisticated processes. Like with most things in evolution, it's not a single leap or bound. You don't get from a lizard to a bird in one step. It's a culmination of an evolutionary journey. And Professor Dieter Brahm points out, Fundamental phenomena such as self-replication, autocatalysis, self-organization, compartmentalization, these are all likely to have played important roles in the development of complex systems like RNA and DNA. And on a more general note, such physical and chemical processes are dependent on availability of those environments 
In other words, what we talked about earlier, that development of the basic organic chemistry, that could kick off the formation of life. So to prove this hypothesis, they conducted an experiment. They tried to create the ideal conditions that you might find around a geothermal vent or some hotspot in the early oceans, these warm puddles of early life on Earth. And they took two complementary DNA strands modeled on characteristics similar to modern tRNA. Each has two hairpins. They are little things on the end that could partially pair with itself and form like a loop. And then there's the information sequence in the middle. Now, if you have eight of these strands, they can interact in a base pair forming to make a complex. So they can join together, link up and make a complex. If you want to think about it another way, you end up with a four digit binary code of all the different combinations. So this is a really simple strand of DNA modeled in a certain way. Now, each experiment began with a template a structure made of two types of central informational sequences. So they locked or coded in a binary sequence. Now that sequence also means what was the complementary that could match with it, because you need to have the corresponding shapes to add a bond into that. And they went on to demonstrate that that templated binary structure can be repeatedly copied or amplified is another way of putting it, by a repeating sequence of temperature fluctuations, warm and cold. Now, if you had a geothermal vent, well, yeah, you would have this warm and cold fluctuations, this pulsing. And another one where it could happen would be water trapped in porous rocks on the sea floor would have also enabled such a reaction cycle to occur. So they created the environment similar to this, this fluctuating warm and cold, and they could see that you could actually get this copying to take place. During the copying process, these complementary strands drawn from this available pool of molecules pair up with the right segments to match the template, and they form a stable backbone. The temperature oscillations basically push along the process of, of copying or amplification. If the temperatures increase for a brief period, the, the template separates and you end up with a newly formed replicate. Then that serves as the basis, as a template, for another round of replication. And this can go on exponentially. Now, what this shows is that with the right conditions, it's possible for TRNA to effectively self-replicate and translate. And those right conditions are conditions that could very conceivably have occurred from a geological and physical perspective. They're not relying on some esoteric thing, like being created at the site of an impact of a meteorite. This could be occurring in a warm pool around a geothermal area or inside a rock. Pretty possible areas for life to fool. So, this tries to shed light on what came first. This proto-tRNA could be the building block that was then be used to create more complex mechanisms. The fact that modern tRNA isn't capable of this function suggests that we have evolved past the need for tRNA to be able to self-replicate because, well, there's a coordinating body and structure mRNA, RNA, and DNA working together with proteins. But before that had all been sorted out, it was quite likely that the self-replication of tRNA, or another mechanism very similar, was chugging along, giving us the building blocks to climb and make that evolutionary journey in the development of biochemistry. This is some fabulous research from the Ludwig Maximilians Universität in Munich, published in the journal eLife. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, Lagrange Point. 
from meteorites and lightning strikes helping unlock phosphorus and kickstart complex organic chemistry to the what came first, mRNA, DNA or proteins. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.